Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. We continue our exposition of Luke's Gospel this morning, and we see Christ's ministry continue to unfold after he had preached his sermon on the plain. So with that then, to remind us of where we're at, let us now give our attention to the reading of God's Holy Word, Luke chapter 7, the first 10 verses. These are the very words of God. Let us give them our attention. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. O holy God, we come to another beautiful text, as your whole word is beautiful. We come to hear this word now preached, Father. And we ask for your special help to be on the man who preaches. Father, we know that it requires the Spirit of the Lord to do anything. It is the Spirit that gives life. And so we pray, Father, that this man would be filled with the Spirit, that he may preach faithfully unto the Lord. And we pray as well that that same Spirit would be present in all the hearts that will hear. For this word is of no fruition unless the word comes with power both from the preacher and is received with power in the hearers. O God, our goal tonight or this morning is that Jesus Christ would be seen as worthy of our great faith. And so, Lord, would you help the minister preach in that manner? Would Jesus increase and may all of us decrease in this assembly? And so to that end, Father, we pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord my strength, and my Redeemer. And we ask this for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we only only possess a record of two places in the Gospels where Jesus Christ is said to marvel at something. And both have to do with faith. In our text, he marvels at this centurion's faith. Never, he says, has he seen such faith in all Israel. But then on the flip side in Mark 6, uh, verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief in Nazareth. These are the only two occasions 
that the scriptures show our Lord to marvel and both deal with faith or the lack thereof. Beloved, what we have to understand is faith is severely, greatly prized by the Lord. So much so, what is it that saves a person? It is the gift of faith that saves a person. And it is unbelief, on the other hand, that is one of the greatest, most wicked evils that will condemn us to hell if we have an evil heart of unbelief. And we must ask, why does the Lord prize faith so greatly? Well, you think about what faith does. It testifies as to what the possessor of faith thinks of the Lord. The strength of a person's faith is seen in how great it sees faith's object, which is Jesus Christ. The greater the faith, the loftier the view of the soul that it has of Jesus Christ. The more that the soul trusts Christ, and he is worthy of that trust, the more that the soul glorifies Christ, seeing he is worthy of all glory and honor. And faith sees that. Hebrews 11.6, boys and girls, you might have memorized this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. One with faith, friends, in other words, believes that God is who he says he is in this word and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He is the rewarder of them that cast all their hopes on him. And that is why God greatly values faith that when he sees great trust and dependence on himself, Christ is glorified by that. So, What I want to just say before we continue on here as we marvel at this man's faith like Christ did is that we have to see, praise God, no matter how strong our faith is, we are saved by it. Even a weak faith in Christ will save because it is faith's object at the end of the day that saves us, not the strength of our faith. So if you're here thinking that in order to be saved, I need to have stronger faith than I have now and you have true saving interest in Christ, that's the wrong way to take this message. What this message is all about is that for the glory of God, we would increase our faith because he is worthy of it. He's not worthy of a small faith. He is worthy of a great faith, faith that if he encountered us, he might even marvel at. And so the Christian longs to glorify God and ever longs to grow in faith. So our theme today considers the strength of the centurion's faith that we might have it too. And we'll do it under the two exhortations on your bulletin. Most of our time will be in the first point here, which is to observe the character and qualities of the centurion's faith. And then second, as application, how we might grow to possess such a faith ourselves. So first, our observation of the centurion's faith. And verse 9 really must be taken to heart. And it is a remarkable word indeed. When Jesus heard these things, He marveled at him, that is the centurion, and turned him about. Jesus turns around and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. What a commendation from the Lord this is, friends. A Gentile, and you think about this, a Gentile centurion had greater faith than any Jew the Lord had met thus far. 
and is so worthy of his commendation that, that Jesus cannot just exclaim it to the Jewish elders who come. He turns around to the crowds and commends the man to them as well. That's a noteworthy thing, friends. Now, this man, even before he communicates with Jesus, it's clear to see that he was a God-fearer. That is what the Bible calls Gentiles at the time who had fear in Jehovah. Boys and girls, you might remember Cornelius and Lydia and the Acts, right? They were called God-fearers. And so this centurion, before he meets Jesus, and you'll actually see his manner of meeting Jesus is very interesting. This centurion, long before he had met Jesus, even at a distance, had put away paganism and he had put away polytheism. He confessed Jehovah as the true God. He would recite the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There is no other God for this man but Jehovah. And he had by this time also believed then that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he looked through the scriptures and he assented to the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. So this man's faith at the time was not a generic, I just trust in God. It is a vital, true, saving faith in the one true God and his anointed. What I want to say, friends, is a faith other than this, a faith less than this, cannot save a man from God's wrath for sin. John 1.12 makes it very clear. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. These are the ones who are saved, that receive Jesus Christ by faith and believe on him. And as I've said, it's noteworthy that this is the first Gentile with faith we have encountered in Luke's gospel. And it's very interesting that the only faith that Jesus is recorded at marveling at is the faith of a Gentile and not a Jew. To Jesus, truly, there is no Jew or Greek. Your bloodline does not matter. Boys and girls, the Lord Jesus Christ looks at your faith. Your faith. He doesn't look at your bloodline. He doesn't care if you're descended from 32 generations of Christians. None of that matters. What matters is your own personal faith in God through in Jesus Christ. You need to believe on the Lord yourself. Many Jews at the time were condemned to hell because of unbelief. And many Gentiles were saved at the time because of their faith. No Jew, no Gentile. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, faith in the Jew, Jesus, that saves you. He wants for all of us, friends, not just boys and girls, he wants your assent that he is the Christ, that this Jesus is the Christ. And he wants, as we heard in John 1.12, you to receive him for yourself. And he wants you, as we heard in our opening prayer, for you to rest on him. Entirely for your salvation, casting all of your soul's burdens on him, trusting that he alone can save and that none of your works can contribute to your salvation. And that will save you, friends. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Praise God. Even the smallest faith can say that. But now then, as we consider the basis of faith there, the basics rather, let us see what a strong faith in the Lord is shown in our centurion. Jesus shows genuine astonishment. And we can't receive it as anything but. Jesus is actually astonished at the man. He is taken aback, taken by surprise. For 30 years, our Lord Jesus Christ had observed great unbelief and great hardness of heart. 
for 30 years, but never once great faith. And we see he is astonished by this. And what you must understand by this is that this is not the marveling of divinity, but it is the marveling of his humanity instead. It's impossible, boys and girls, for the divine nature to marvel at anything. It is omniscient. It is all-knowing. It decrees all things. But Christ's humanity, it learns as we learn. It takes in sensory data. It takes in experience as we do. And it reasons as we do. He has, as the great creed says, he has a reasonable soul just like us. His humanity has a finite mind like ours. And divinity, you think about this, just basic facts, friends. The divine the divine mind could never reveal its entirety to a finite human mind. It's impossible. But his divine nature can and does communicate secret things to his humanity as it so chooses. And there are certain things that the human nature of Christ does not know. For instance, he said, and he said it honestly, he does not know the day of his return. That was kept from his humanity. And so you think about this here, and we we don't have time to go into a whole sermon on the two natures of Christ. But you think here, and this is actually a delightful thing to think about, that the divine mind was pleased to withhold knowledge of the centurion's faith from the human nature. Why? So that the Holy Ghost can record Christ's great wonder at meeting with it. What a joy it is when you think about the operation of Christ's two natures in his one person. It's really a wonderful thing. And if you understood those things, you would see the Gospels in a whole new light. Well, we'll leave that there for now. Just But to think about the delight that the humanity had there is, is a wonderful thing. But uh, let's come back and think about what's driving this narrative. What drove the centurion to seek Christ or seek Jesus? Um, this shows the fruit of his faith. Really, it does. If you look at verse 2, it says, A certain centurion servant who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. In Matthew's parallel account, the centurion pleads with Jesus, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. That's Matthew 8, verse 6. This man has a servant in his home who is paralyzed. Probably that signifies a stroke, being in grievous pain, and his life was fading away. And what saving faith has done in this man, in this centurion, is it has made him compassionate, hasn't it, friends? His servant was as a son to him, and he was not property to him. This is what saving faith does. In the servants, in his servant's torment, his own soul was being tormented, as he couldn't stand to see his servant suffer. That's what saving faith does, and we'll we'll consider that a little later. But how did he know about Jesus, you might ask? How did he know about Jesus to seek him? On our first verse, it says that Jesus had returned to Capernaum after preaching the Sermon on the Plain. And it's been a while, but you might remember that Jesus has done many mighty works in Capernaum thus far. He has preached in its synagogues with power, Luke 4, 31 and 32. He had healed Peter's mother-in-law and multitudes of needy souls that had come to him. He had even cast out demons that screamed, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. All this has happened in Capernaum. But the centurion, it is clear, has never witnessed it himself. In verse 3, it says, He heard of Jesus. He's never actually experienced any of these miracles himself. 
And I want you to note this in the text. It's easy to miss. Never once in our text does the man meet Jesus in person. Not once. His communication with Christ is at a distance. Never direct. The Jews speak to Jesus for him. Then his friends speak to Jesus. But he never does meet the Lord face to face. That's another reason, friends, the Lord marveled at his faith. As he told Thomas, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. How many crowds came to him seeing the miracles and would not once believe on his name. And here is this man who's never actually met Jesus Christ, believes strongly in the Lord. And he marvels at this faith. This man is like us, friends. We have not seen Jesus with our eyes and we won't see him with our eyes until glory. Yet Peter wrote this, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1.8. What a thing faith is, friends, that causes you to love a Christ you have never seen with your eyes, to have joy inexpressible at the thought of our Lord and Savior. That is the power of spirit-wrought faith, friends, to do that in us. And that is what saving faith is like. And so this man's faith produced in his soul a sight of a magnificent and all-sufficient Christ he has not once met. And such faith, what does it do? It sends him to Jesus, even though he has never met Jesus. And so a strong faith you see from the man sends you to Christ for every need you have. Every need you have, it sees Jesus Christ as all-sufficient. That's what a strong faith does. Faith agrees with the Bible, which says, In Jesus are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 Faith agrees with the Bible that Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.30 and 31. You see that, friends? Faith sees Christ made unto us all things that we need. But faith does not just assent to these things. The man didn't just sit in his room thinking, yes, Jesus Christ is all these things. His faith sent him to Jesus Christ, didn't it? His faith sent him to Christ. Now, One of the remarkable things, you see this man has such a great and grand vision of Christ in his heart and his mind from faith. One of the things you see about this man as well, this man of power, this man of esteem, is that you see as faith causes Christ to grow in his esteem, he himself grows less and less and less. This is in the text as well. Let's start with verse 3. He sends the Jewish elders beseeching, and they go to beseech Jesus that he would come and heal his servant. And what do they tell Jesus in verse 4? That he was worthy, that he was worthy of whom he should do this. They say, in the estimation of the elders anyway, the Jewish elders, this centurion Jesus is worthy of your help. He is a man who is worthy of your help and assistance. Why? Well, look at the reasons why. They say, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. They first appealed to Jesus as a fellow Jew. See, this man loves our people. He loves our nation, Jesus. See that the man loves us so much, in fact, that he would build a synagogue all by himself for us. 
He's a patron of the church, in other words, Jesus Christ. And what did they think? What is in the back of their mind? They thought that the man's works could secure the Lord's favor. Isn't that essentially fallen man's religion, friends? That men become worthy of God's help by their works. And if you have ever labored under the burden of this thinking, you must know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 So if you're here, friend, and you've been laboring under that burden, you must not be kept from Jesus because you think you have no works to commend you to him. Because none of us do. The Bible says that all of our good works are as filthy rags in God's eyes. That synagogue, loving the Jews, all of that is as filthy rags in God's eyes. It is faith, and faith alone that commends us to Jesus. It is faith that justifies us in his eyes, not our works. Jesus was asked in John 6, 28, wasn't he? Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? What was his answer, boys and girls? This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. That is the work of God that commends you to the Lord. Faith, that you believe on the one God has sent. Doesn't that glorify God? When you tell God, yes, this one is your beloved son, that glorifies God. That's what he's after. And when you think about it that way, and you think about the Bible, right? And you think about the testimony of faith and not our works, because we are all sinners, and the best of our works are far, far less than what God expects of us. All of it is tainted with sin. And it was that truth that freed Paul, wasn't it, from his Pharisaism. And that's that truth that freed Luther as well from popery. That is the freeing nature of faith, friends. How freeing that is for those of us who have pleaded, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Trusting the Lord will save. Beloved, listen to this carefully. The Lord does not marvel in this text that the man built a synagogue, though the Jews would marvel at that. Jesus does not marvel that he loved the nation. Jesus marveled at his faith. We have to get that right. Well, the Jews thought he was worthy due to his good deeds. And what would the world perceive as well? Here's a centurion. This man is surely worthy. He has power. He has authority. He has servants. And the thing about this is so many of us are influenced in that way of thinking. If we are somebody in this world, right, we start to think we are somebody, When we look at the things that we've done, we look at them with satisfaction. Yes, I am somebody. And Christian people are very, very prone to the same kind of folly, friends. But look at this man and learn. What did this man's faith teach? In verses 6 and 7, when the centurion sent his friends, they spoke on his behalf, right? Um, And then what what the Lord says, or rather what the centurion says through his friends, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. Twice, the man repeats that he is utterly unworthy of Jesus and his attention. Now, you also know that there is a cultural issue here as well, right? Uh, The Jews had come to believe that to come into the house of a Gentile would make them unclean. 
That's pharisaical nonsense. You see this error with Cornelius and Peter in Acts chapter 10. The Bible prohibited the people of God, and still does prohibit the people of God not to be married or yoked unequally to unbelievers. But a prohibition of visiting a Gentile to minister to them, that's not found in the law of God at all. But I think this man's faith sees far more than this pharisaical prohibition. His faith truly sees that he is unworthy of Jesus. As we all are, friends, there is nothing in us to commend us to the Lord. All we bring to the Lord are our faults. All we bring to the Lord are our sins. All of our good works that we do, truly, if they are done in faith, are his good works done through us. And what of our worldly pedigree and prestige? He doesn't care anything about them. They're nothing in his eyes. And you might think all this talk of unworthiness means that men like the centurion just have a hopeless sense of them. That's what the world will teach you today, right? That, oh, you shouldn't talk that way. Your self-esteem is going to go down into, into the floor, and that's going to be a bad thing for you. No, the man is not hopeless. He is humble. And there is a great distinction there. What separates a humble faith from a hopeless despondency is the soul with humble faith does not dwell on its unworthiness, but instead, like the centurion, turns to take a look at the worthy Savior. That's what true faith that is humble does. Saving faith clutches after the Savior. Saving faith says, I am unworthy, but Jesus has come for the unworthy. That this is the nature of the Redeemer, and that He is the unworthy sinner's glory. My glory is found in Christ. Two chapters ago, Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance in Luke 5.32. Unworthy ones, and I count myself in that too, we must not ever buy the devil's lie that keeps you out from seeking Jesus, that you have nothing in you to commend in yourself. Or we must not buy the devil's lie on the other hand, that you are somebody that Jesus must take note of. Both of those things are utterly false. What is our hope is this. Those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. There are no qualifications there, friends. There are no set number of good deeds you must have done as in other religions. He says, any of you, any of you who come to me, I will not, and I promise this, I will not cast you out. Unworthy sinners. Even Paul, right? So you think about this. Did Paul bring to Jesus all of his attainments and all of his learnings as a Pharisee of Pharisees? No, he counted all as dung. All his attainments were rubbish. He, he called himself the least of all saints. He called himself the chief of sinners. So that you might understand, sinners, that all of you can come to Jesus. Not a one can be excluded. You need to bring to Jesus what Abraham brought, faith of this kind, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. That is faith, a persuasion of what the gospel teaches. Well, by his friends, well, look at this, there's so much here, and so you'll have, excuse me from going through this, and you'll probably think I'm not going through it quick enough. But by his friends, the centurion brings an argument as to why Jesus can help. And this is very important, and this is actually the catalyst for the Lord marveling at the man's faith. Neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. 
For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, etc. Now, up to now, there has been no report of Jesus' miracles being done at a distance. He was always next to the people he had healed. But you think about this man's faith and why Jesus marveled at it. His faith taught the man that what Jesus is, that he has all authority in heaven and in earth. This man says, say in a word, this man knows Jesus is God. That he can speak a word as God did in the creation and anything, anything can happen that the Lord speaks. This uh, man said, I know authority, I am under it, and I have men under my own authority, and you, O Lord, right? Just like I say, I say go, they go. I say come, they come. I say do, and they do what I say. And so this man says to Jesus through his friends, he says, in the same way, I know you are above all things, and you have authority and power over all things, including disease and everything else in this world. Tell the palsy to go and it will go. Tell the disease to do this and it will do this. With the word of your divine power, Lord, you can heal. This man knows Jesus is God. And this is what makes the man, uh, Jesus marvel at the man's faith. You think about this. How many times being with him for so long, his own disciples missed this. In a boat, they finally started to get a sense of it when he commanded the storms. They're like, who is this man? was able to command storms and seas. Yet this man, at a distance, never once meeting the Lord face to face, never once witnessing a single miracle, says, I know you have power over all things. Saving faith, beloved. You and I haven't met Jesus face to face. Saving faith, beloved, knows Christ is sovereign over all things. And it even understands this, because the age of these miracles, these miracles we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, even believes this, and you have to get this straight. It believes that if Jesus does not heal, it is not because he does not have power. Saving faith also knows it is better for the disease not to be healed if he does not answer. As David said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. What we have to see with saving faith who understands the sovereignty of Christ is that we say, not my will, but thy will be done, even as our Savior himself prayed in the garden. This, too, is the stuff of saving faith, contrary to whatever the word of faith folks will teach today. And the centurion, right, who not only say then that uh, Christ has power over disease and everything else, you have to understand, though it's not expressed, it is taught here that the centurion would even say that Christ has authority over himself, doesn't he? That if Jesus came back and said to the centurion, go and do this, he would go and do this. Uh, you think about, uh, um, in the Old Testament, you think about things like Naaman, you know, and you think about men who refuse to do what uh, the prophet of God says with the leprosy. Right? Why would I do that? No, this man knows that Jesus has the authority to say and to tell him to do whatever. This, too, is saving faith. All right. Well, you think about this. Um, 
how he comes to the Lord then, right? And I want you to see that faith, when it approaches the Lord in prayer especially, it is in the habit of bringing arguments to the Lord. You see that here in his prayer. You know, the centurion did not bring his own works or his own worthiness, as we've already said. But he says, I know what you are, Lord. And I know that you alone can do this thing for me. You have almighty power. You think of how Jeremiah prayed as an example. Are there any among the vanities of the Gentiles that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are not thou he, O Lord, our God? Therefore, we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all these things. Jeremiah 14.22. See how the man prays. He, he has a, a petition in his heart. And he says, you, Lord, can fulfill these things, for you have the power to do it. And so faith that Jesus commends here in this text is ready to plead the nature of God in prayer. And what we must do is learn the nature of God to better pray. And in that, your faith will grow as well. In your prayers, you need to plead the Lord's power. You need to plead other attributes as well. The Lord's compassion, the Lord's justice, the Lord's own glory. Remember the conclusion of the Lord's prayer. And how sad a thing it is that so many remove the, the ending of the Lord's prayer these days. Jesus says at the end of the Lord's prayer, you must argue why the Lord must answer these prayers. What is the ending argument of the Lord's prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's an argument, friends. What is it? It's you saying, my prayers, Lord, are for the sake of your kingdom. My prayers are found because you have the power to do these things. And these prayers, O oh God, must be for your glory. Be glorified in an answer to these prayers. That's the argument at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And you must learn to argue with the Lord. Not misunderstand. Today you might use that word argue in the wrong way to be contentious. But instead to bring arguments to the Lord of why he should answer. Well, again, we have to go through this so quickly. And again, this is such a rich text. There are other aspects of the man's faith that are worthy to observe, showing faith's fruits. And I'll come back to something I had talked about early on. His faith gave him a concern and care for his servant. Faith causes lords to love their servants as sons, no matter how lowly they are. You know, other centurions, you think of this unconverted, would have let the man perish. He's just a servant. You can replace him easily. Why do you care so much? Just put him in a corner somewhere, let him die, and get another one. But this believing centurion was in anguish, and he loved the man as a son. And if you are a superior friend, that is your calling. Sad to say, many professing Christian business owners, parents, and elders treat those under them no better than the Gentiles do. That is no work of faith, friends. In Matthew 20, 25 through 28, Jesus said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister or servant. And whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the fruit of saving faith as well. Christ-like compassion. To be a servant even of those the world would call our inferiors. And actually biblically are called our inferiors rather. But Jesus said, if God, who is so high above us, 
came down to minister to us, his servants, we must minister to them as well and care for them. We must love them, pray for them, help them, and bless them. Here's another fruit. His faith caused him to love the Jews, the people of God back then. And so saving faith loves fellow Christians. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. 1 John 3.14 But I also want to say, and we've heard that recently in recent sermons, so I will move on from there. But saving faith must also, we have to see this, love God's ancient people, the ethnic Jews too. Romans 11.25 and following. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. They shall come out of Sion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. A Jew is not saved because they are a Jew. Romans 2, 28 and 29 says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. A true Jew is one born again. His circumcision is in the heart. Note, if you're working through infant baptism, here is another link to circumcision of the heart as well. But that said, Romans 11 says that the Jews are beloved of God for their father's sake, for the sake of the patriarchs that he loved so very much. And so we must believe that the Jews will turn to their promised Messiah. They, like us, will look on the one they have pierced and mourn him. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable is what the Bible says. And we say, praise God for that, right? Because if you are one of the elect, you will never, ever have your election taken away from you. Praise the Lord. And so his covenant with the fathers will stand. And one day, as they are provoked to jealousy, as the Gentiles are brought in more and more, and we, what does the text say? That, um, that through our mercy, your mercy, they also may obtain mercy. That as we proclaim the gospel, the saving mercy of God, they might come in to the church of Jesus Christ as well. So just want to put that there as there's so many confusions on the Jews. Third, the man's faith expressed itself, yes, in doing good works. He built a synagogue that God may be worshipped. You know, when a man loves the Lord, he wants the kingdom to prosper and he wants the kingdom to grow, especially when it comes to the circumstances of divine worship. And you couldn't, I couldn't help. I couldn't help it. But think of how you bought this pulpit over and above your regular giving congregation. How you have established a building fund for a future dwelling place that we might dwell and uh, sing God's praises. This was ever the fruit, right, of, you think of David's faith. 
This was the fruit of David's faith as well. When he looked at how he was dwelling in a palace and God was dwelling in tents, he said this should not be. God must have a place to dwell in. And not only David, right, but all of the people as well pitched in. The people rejoiced for that they offered willingly because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord and David the king also rejoiced with great joy as the materials for the temple were coming in freely. And what did they recognize really at the end of the day? They were just returning what the Lord had given them in the first place. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. We're just giving you right back, Lord, what you have given us. Who are we that you have given us so graciously? And so we will give in return. And so this is why the centurion delighted. And he wasn't currying political favor, friends. This is why the man delighted to build the Jews a synagogue to worship the Lord. Because he loved the Lord and he wanted to see the Lord worshiped. And so it's the same thing for us when we give or we seek the kingdom in our uh, estate, right? We're not doing this as the prosperity teachers teach us. If you give money, then you will get a hundredfold in return. No, that's rubbish. We seek the glory of God. We want God to be worshipped. We want God to be praised all around the earth. And we will give willingly out of our substance that he has given us. He has given us Christ. What is my bank account? What are the material? What is my time? He has given us Christ. And fourth, this is a bit between the lines, but it is a good and necessary consequence. His faith made him not care if he was unpopular. This is political suicide, friends, to be so close to the Jews for this man. To believe in their intolerant God, in quotes, who rightly denied the existence of any others, that will not make you popular in Rome. His ability to advance as a centurion was greatly limited. And God only knows what happened to the man when persecution broke out after Christ's resurrection. But one thing I know, a faith that Christ marvels at is a faith that would give up all things for Christ's sake. He was a God-fearer. He did not fear what man could do to him. He would suffer the loss of all things as Paul would for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And our faith must say the same. For the Lord has not given himself to us to save us from a mere palsy, but something far, far, far worse, our sin. And he did it for us dying in love. So that the apostle would say when he spoke of his faith and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. And so we live in the same way. If I follow the Lord and I have to give up all things, I follow the Lord. So having considered this man's great faith a little quicker than that, let's consider growing to possess such a faith. Now perhaps you think on this centurion and you, you say, Lord, I wish to have such a faith. I believe. Yes, I believe, Lord, but help thou mine unbelief. I want to grow in faith. I want to see Jesus more and more as all-sufficient. I want to obey him from the heart. I want to go to him when my soul is downcast and in my trials. I want to go there first to Jesus. Well, beloved, what we have to see is for all of us, me too, our faith is not what it ought to be. 
to walk well in this world, to keep our soul from being troubled, to be faithful to God. We need more faith. And the Bible says you and I can grow in it. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. Your faith is not a stagnant thing. You can grow exceedingly in faith, beloved, praise the Lord. And how does one grow in faith? The first place you must begin, and so many don't get this far, is you must admit that faith is not your own doing. Faith is the gift of God, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. And as a second witness, Philippians 1.29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Faith is given to you as a gift from God the Holy Spirit. Now, at this, wrongfully so, some believers are despondent, saying, well, I suppose I will never have more faith than I have now then because I cannot do anything to increase it. Friends, that actually misses the point entirely. Absolutely so. The fact that it is a gift from the Holy Spirit should fill you with hopefulness, not hopelessness. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Luke 11.35. Do you see that? What does the Bible say? We do not receive because we do not ask. Or we ask amiss to spend on our lusts. What did the poor man in Mark 9 cry though? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. He prayed for more faith. And if you struggle to walk by faith and not by sight, if you struggle with temptations and you struggle to mortify lusts, Pray for more faith, beloved. And so prayer as a means of grace is a means the Lord uses to grant the desires of your heart. Make these the desires of your heart, congregation. When was the last time you prayed, Lord, give me more faith? And how many times do you pray, Lord, give me this day my daily bread? And what's the proportion there? Both of those are good prayers. But when have you last prayed for more faith? Now add to prayer the word of God. Why? For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. The word not only gives us faith, you need to understand this, but it also increases our faith. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, why? That ye may grow thereby, 1 Peter 2, 2. Notice that Peter speaks of us like a child, right? Hungering, desiring, the sincere milk of the word, that we would grow through it. That's what you need when your faith is weak. If you're wrestling right now with faith, beloved, listen to Proverbs twenty-two seventeen through 19. Bow down thine ear and hear the words of the wise and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them with thee. They shall withal be fitted in thy lips. Why? That thy trust may be in the Lord. But especially, you must use the word correctly. When you go to the word, you always have to consider faith's object, which is Jesus Christ. The word shows you his glory. The word shows you his power, his love, his holiness. The word shows you that he alone is worthy of your faith. And as you consider the glory of Christ, who God is, 
your faith will be strengthened because you say, if this God is God, how glorious he is and how my faith should be strong in him. And then you consider his mighty works in the word. If you would just read, for instance, the history books in the Bible, you will find that faith is always vindicated. And you must read them that way. That God is vindicated and all who have trust in him are. That's what Hebrews 11.13 says. These all died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What you will find when you read the Bible is every man's faith is vindicated. And yours will be too. Then consider the prophecies. Okay, Open up the prophetic books and you will see how they are all amen in Christ. These prophecies aren't like those uh, strange things that Nostradamus wrote, right? These are clear. These are very specific prophecies in the word of God. And you open up your New Testament and you see Jesus Christ fulfill them. And your faith grows. For no other then is worthy of this faith. But this is the thing, friends. You must know these promises. You must know their fulfillment. And you must also know all the promises that are outstanding and believe them as well. And the problem is we don't know the promises of God and our faith is very weak. What is he just just off the top of my head? He has promised. He has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He has promised that he who comes to him, he will save to the uttermost. He has said, I promise you, beloved, I rule over all things for your good. I make all things work out for the good of them that love me. He has promised, yes, your nation right now, it seems to be a mess, but the nations will come to me. Sin will be vanquished. There will be a resurrection. I will dwell with you and wipe away all your tears. How faith grows when it knows the Bible. But keep your mind out of your Bible and faith withers and faith fades. And so faith must constantly meditate on the word, not just hear it and not just read it. It must feed on the word constantly, turning it around in heart and mind. What would happen to your soul? Here's just one scripture. What would happen to your soul if your mind was simply set on this one thought all the day long? God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. And also a couple of verses down. And we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. Beloved, how much stronger your faith would be if you meditated on the word instead of the world all day long? Find your joy in these precious words from God more than anything in this world. Think about how much your thoughts are on this world and how much your thoughts are on the word. And especially as we've considered it, have the word constantly remind you of the love of Jesus for you, a sinner. Faith grows tremendously. And again, I'm going to go back to this. This is a pivotal verse for, for, for the Apostle Paul as well as for all of us. Paul lived by this faith, Galatians 2.20. I live by the faith of the Son of God. And what are his thoughts of the Son of God? Which hath loved me and given himself for me. That's his meditation. I live my life this way. By faith that this Jesus, the Son of God. Notice he uses, and I've brought this out before. He uses the divine title. The Son of God loved me. The pre-existent Christ God Almighty, Alpha and Omega, loved me from before the ages began and gave himself for me when he came in flesh. 
It is impossible, friend, to walk by faith and not by sight without that sentiment. The cross must ever be before you, that both sin's horror and God's love are found in it. The thought that the Lord that I love loved me first and was fastened to the cross for my sins, his love constraining him on the cross when he could have come down and called down legions of angels, his love keeping him there until he had drunk every last bit of God's wrath for me, the sinner. And so uh, faith is grown and exercised by this love for Jesus. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Love for God supremely. So that's prayer and the word. But the sacraments grow your faith too. In the supper, we've considered this in our series. You see the gospel visibly. Christ broken for you. And you say, right, as real as these elements are, so is my salvation. So is my Redeemer who lives at God's right hand. You come to the supper bringing your unbelief and you will see them vanquished in the sacrament. And faith will grow as it feeds on Christ. And when you see someone baptized, right, don't just think about them. As those waters cleanse their body, so too has the filthiness of my flesh been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. It's a picture there for you. And faith also grows, friends. You see, you need to have a total, total view of the Lord in all areas of life. Faith also grows as it observes God's working in this world through providence. Let me encourage you, and this is something I have had to do, and seminary forced me in this way, but now I enjoy it. Church history is glorious because it shows the truth of Christ's promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The Roman Empire, as you read church history, could not stamp out the promise. The papacy could not stamp out the promise. The Soviet Union couldn't stamp out the promise. Neither then can Islam or liberalism and your faith will grow. Read Christian biographies. See what the Lord has done in his people. Also consider your own past and see what the Lord has brought you through and you will admit to the Lord as you remember the works of God in your own life, truly you have brought me through fire and through water. In all of this, you would see the truth of the ninth psalm. They that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For what? For thou, Lord, hast never failed them that seek thee. Psalm 9 verse 10. And faith grows. Recall as well, each time you have sinned and the misery of it, and remember God's promise that sin is a reproach. Faith must grow there too. Then, exercise your faith. I'll just, uh, this will be another sermon. But do good works to glorify your Father in heaven. Flee temptation, live for holiness. The more faith is exercised, the more it grows, just as physical exercise does for your strength. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. 1 Timothy 4.8. Well, I have to wrap up, but the centurion's faith in Jesus was vindicated in verse 10. They found the servant whole that had been sick. Your faith in the Lord will be vindicated. He doesn't promise to heal miraculously today. That was a sign showing him to be Christ. You can pray for healing though, but whether he heals or not, True saving faith says this, it is the Lord 
let him do what seemeth him good. But you do have sure promises that he will never waver on, friends, especially know this one as we close. He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Even now, the Lord is interceding for you with faith. May you walk by faith in that promise until faith makes way for sight in glory. And may God preserve you and me too until that day. Amen. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. O Lord, our God, we pray, Lord, increase our faith. Father, for those who have heard the word of God and have heard that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, we pray that they, O Lord, would be given saving faith, that your spirit, we pray for that good gift of the Holy Spirit to those who do not know the Lord Jesus. May this be the day of salvation for them, truly. And for those of us who do believe, Father, We do pray, Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief. Give us strong faith in you, Lord, for you are worthy of it. We are unworthy of the least of your mercies, and faith teaches us that. But Lord, you are worthy of a great faith in us, that we would better glorify you. And so, Father, for your glory's sake, would you you give all of us here assembled today a greater faith in you. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.